Hey, everybody. It's Mike Carlson from Podcast the Ride. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Scott Gairdner. Hello. And Jason Sheridan. Hey. And we've got a little announcement. We sure do. Yep. We're launching our new podcast on an app called Spoke to give Spoke. you three exclusive episodes. Can you believe it? Three. I can't. Yeah. Don't don't believe it, but it's true. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. Well, how does that work, though? Well, I'm going to explain. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlists of clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. So they're all grouped by topics or themes is what you're saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. Thank you for figuring that out. Thank mm-hmm. you. I mean, you could try like a playlist that's uh, like about music being decoded when it's playlists with clips about unpacking and analyzing and figuring out how people make songs and what. why are they so cool, you know? They also have one uh, called Spoke's Perpetually Single Playlist, dedicated to podcasts about relationships, or lack thereof, in my case. Sure, Jason, don't put yourself down. I want to, I want to, all right. (laughs) (laughs) There's all sorts of things is what we're trying to say, and Spoke has, like, fun exclusive content from Feral, like our podcast. Uh, So you definitely don't want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now, free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Podcast the Ride's exclusive Spoke episodes at hearspoke.com slash podcast the ride. That's the address. Uh, Check it out. Spoke. It's time to spoke. Yeah, we're spoken. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high-performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable, you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. <music> Hello and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. As always, I'm Matt Dwyer and this is my show. Um, if you're a first-time listener, I welcome you with m- open arms and much love. Uh, the show is just what the title there says. It's, uh, you know, I, I have a conversation with somebody. It's uh, free-formed and loosey-goosey. Uh, often it is uh, great artists, writers, musicians, creative folks. Uh, sometimes I have uh, activists or people of influence from, uh, you know, like you say, a Black Panther or Mark Rudd from The Weather Underground. Um, and, uh, today I have Dave Ross, who is a comedian. And as if, if you know, because I'm a comedian and there's a lot of podcasts where it's comedian on comedian, I rarely do a comedian unless I believe it's going to be something uh, a bit different and unique. And, uh, well, Mr. Ross surely delivers that. This is an incredible conversation. Very proud. Uh, you know, I've known Dave for a long time and excuse the sniffle there. And, uh, you know, we've hung out and we've gone and seen, we saw the OCs together. And, uh, but I, I've, you know, we always see each other in these group, big groups. So it was nice to sit down with this guy and have a one-on-one chat. And he's really, really, really an interesting guy. And it's a great conversation. And I'm, I've been stoked. I've recorded this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm really 
stoked to uh, to uh, get this out there into the internet world. And uh, that's that. That is that. That is uh, my talk about Dave Ross. Uh, and he, you see him do comedy too. He's if you get the chance, it's uh, it's impressive. He's he. I think I've done comedy a lot longer than he has, and he achieves goals. I'm still striving to get to. Hey, we're all on our own path. Am I right, everybody? Anyway, uh, my world is as as I announced last week uh, with Jerry Stahl, My wife is pregnant. Uh, we got married March second. I think we found out we were pregnant like uh, a couple weeks later, like Irish people, because I'm half Irish, and you can't have a pregnancy. It, it, technically, my she was she was. Uh, Pregnant before we said our vow, so you know we we're keeping it real Irish by <laughs> having a te- technically an illegitimate child. Uh, but uh, I guess it's around the size of a peapod. I saw the heartbeat uh, earlier this week, which is uh, I you know for a woman that the thing that lives in there it dwells it. Uh, but for for the for 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 me it's just like this idea, and you don't really. I I think you spend your first couple weeks of the pregnancy kind of just milling over your life and what this means and what it what there's nothing tangible other than thought and concept about it. So when you see the heartbeat, you're like, holy fucking! I think I cried non uh, like all day, just randomly. I would weep because I there was this excuse the sniffling. Uh, but there there's just you know then it becomes this thing that is uh. Uh, tangible, no longer just a uh, I can't go drinking a New Orleans baby, because <laughs> you know I've uh, I'm 46 years old. I've lived my life. I've been a fuck off for most of my life. I've done whatever I wanted. Uh, I would just blow money and go to another city and and screw around. And uh, I've never set an alarm clock. Uh, rarely, rarely do. And it's just like now it's like the rest of my life. Which for forty something years it's been do whatever I want. Now it's like, hey, there's this guy, this person, uh, uh, that I am accountable for, and that is weird. You have to really pay your rent on time when you have a baby. <laughs> that, that baby stuff really—you got to keep the electricity on, and uh, waking up on the kitchen floor with a pizza box for a, a pillow. Those days are done. Of course, you know, not always. I. I had a friend who used to go bar to bar looking for his dad. Maybe it'll be that dad. Because that friend wrote for Conan, very successful guy. Maybe I just need my kid to come looking for me in a bar. That is the key to a successful child. Uh, but I will keep you updated on baby things and other things. I, right now, that's all there is. That and my employment is uh, coming. I'm really sorry about the sniffling. It's just it's, it's allergy season. It's spring. Anyway, I'll keep you updated on life. Uh, if you can, go to my website, thematdwire.com. Find my social media, follow things. Also, if you can go to uh, the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page at Feral Audio, use my Amazon link, and anytime you buy things on Amazon, just put that in your toolbar. Anytime you buy something, I and Feral Audio get a kick it back of that money. And you know what? That uh, That's going to help me buy some diapers because I'm going to need some diapers. All right, here's the great conversation with Dave Ross. Thank you very much.
Do you need something? I left my phone in my car. It's fine. I don't need it. Okay. Uh, it's I actually hope- kind of liberating, but I just was like, ah, ah. Yeah. isn't that great? I had a, I didn't have a phone for two weeks once, and I was just like, I would I purposely leave my apartment so I couldn't like for like hours, and I'd be like, no one can get in touch with yeah. me. It was like this magical. And it yeah. used to be that way. <laughs> it's like it used to just be that way. Yeah, where like if someone called you, um, then they felt like they had to wait an hour or two before they decided to do that thing with someone else. And you could pretend you missed, like when caller ID came, that was great because you're like, oh man, I just you could totally. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you could do that now. You could. Well, there was that. Yeah, there was that wonderful period where caller ID, caller ID came out, but people didn't know if you had caller ID. So if you had it, you could like look. And then not answer it if you wanted to. Did you did you have internet as a kid? Like, is that? Is I mean, I did, uh, but not like now. When I was, we did get our first computer when I was like ten or twelve or something like that. But it was like an Apple II, and then we got a Commodore, and then we got like a a gateway, like a PC, when I was like in ninth or tenth grade. And not long after that, we got the internet. But it was like you know we had like a. 14.4k modem and we only had one phone line it's like yeah it sounds bad it's out it's super slow and i remember at the time it was like oh 14 is so much faster than <laughs> you know oh uh, we had a 9k or whatever and it uh yeah we had only one phone line in the house so if you wanted to use the internet it would take up the phone and so my parents were like you can only use the internet for 10 minutes at a time and it took like 10 minutes to load a website so it's like basically not having the internet yeah, I didn't get an, I like I didn't have an email address until I was thirty. Wow, how I mean, old are you now? Forty-two, six. forty-six. <laughs> wow, I love saying that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love saying it now. <laughs> you know, Matt Dwyer's forty-six. I know it feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> That's why at, at your show a couple weeks ago you're like, oh, I'm thirty. I'm like, yeah, okay. All right, fuck you. <laughs> but I know there is that there is a definable like thing where you start noticing like, oh, I'm not I'm different now. Yeah. Yeah, and it was good for me. I think it's bad for some people, um, but it was good for me. My, like, and it wasn't, I, I talk about it like it's my, it was the 30 mark, but it was really like 28, 27 or 28, where I stopped becoming a child, I think is really what it is. Or I became like a, uh, someone who gave a shit about himself. I think that's really what it is. Like, I started to basically care what I looked like and care about, like, how I was treated and care about what I did with my life and what I consumed and what I produced and how my apartment looked. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah, little things like that. I, some, my thirties and it really made my life so much better because I was like, (laughs) I mean, I was such a, I mean, you know what it's like to just drink all the stuff and eat all the pills. And like, it's like, it's weird. It's your life becomes you just treat your body like trash and your brain like trash. Your brain like trash is the worst. And you you think you're treating yourself well because you like take. Oh, I took seven days off and I slept and I feel better. But really, you're just like beating the shit out of your own brain and you never give it a break. And so even when you're not fucked up, you're like filled with anxiety and fear and depression and you just like never let it go away. And I started letting it go away in my thirties. It was, and yeah. I feel better. I, I let it, I started letting it, I, I'm one of the people that it was bad for. Cause I think I went into denial mode and I was like, God, oh, no, I'm an artist. And, or the, yeah. that, and I, my thirties were pretty boo, boozed out and I really? even like slipped back into cocaine for a while, which was sure. 
uh, really bad. Some what? of my friends I've noticed a resurgence in cocaine. Also, Molly's around a lot now, and people and fucking. Adderall, man. What is with comedians and Adderall? I think people, it's there. I think the the myth of like, oh, it helps me write. And I'm like, ah. that's like saying heroin to help Parker play jazz. Like I'm like, <laughs> we we still gonna go down that road. Yeah. <laughs> Heroin's how I feel like myself. <laughs> <laughs> Especially that alleyway blowjob thing. <laughs> oh God, I just love sucking dirty dicks. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, I mean, would you say your twenties got? Were they a little dark at all, or is that a... Yeah, I don't know. I I wouldn't even say that. Yeah, I mean, the answer is yes. <laughs> but they're so dark, and more than that, different, that they feel like totally other people. Like, uh, in stand-up, I, I, I've done a lot of storytelling, both to- telling stories in stand-up and then the medium storytelling, and I I had all these stories that I would tell about my early 20s in college, I like I like smoked heroin for a little while, and, and then I did every other drug too. And uh, and I was with this group of friends, and we all had a big falling out, and there was like a lot of emotional abuse in there and uh, violence, and uh, and I had some really emotionally abusive relationships too. I moved around a lot, and I, and I, then like after the drugs, it was just like drunk all day, every day for a few years, and uh, and I would tell stories about that. But now I'm six or seven years separate from that, and uh, I can't tell the stories anymore because they don't even feel like me. It feels like I'm reading a short story about someone else. I don't even relate to my own life anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, I don't even feel the darkness. And it's so funny. Like I, I'm actually going to – after this comes out, I'm going to send this to my girlfriend because she gets so – she's like, don't – do heroin and I'm like I'm not gonna I, I and, and you know from her perspective like of course it's a worry I used to do heroin she's like every time I bring it up she's like no don't uh, and I'm like no you, it's not me it's like a whole other that's it's funny because I think it's just I mean a, a lot of people's in uh, knowledge of drugs is sort of it's like oh the movie of the week thing where they're like oh and it's just a constant because str- I'm like keep... I know I'll never do cocaine again of course but it's like well, the way yeah, the way it's sold to you, especially if you've never done drugs before, is like, is it's like the person who does drugs is like a stupid child for their entire life. You know, people are complex. People go through phases in their life. You do learn from things, even if it takes you forty fucking years to learn it. You learn. Yeah, I think some people's addiction level, like I mean, I looked at like Jerry Stahl, who would like kick heroin and then it's just like and then just one day he'd find himself on skid row like buying like and it's yeah. just like he just couldn't. but do you think that he ever knew do you think that he ever really i'll bet you that i don't know i don't i don't know what it's like to be him at all but i i like i know this about myself i could start smoking cigarettes at any moment i quit like two or three years ago but i still really want one all the time uh but i know i won't smoke h again i just if I see it, I get really grossed out. And I just wonder if he was ever like that. I wonder, like, I think there's a, like a switch in your brain where you're like, can't or don't want to do something again. And even if you like, there are a lot of people and people I've known that kick heroin and they're like, oh, finally, I'm done. But they didn't, they don't intellectually 
know that they're done because right. they didn't want to be done. They love heroin. It's just the whole world around them telling them to quit because they've been like robbing their friends and been a piece of shit. You know what I mean? No, I do. <laughs> no, I mean, I just, but I mean, I was like, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> there was like, there was, I'm just making sure uh, there was like a definable moment when I was like, when I would be doing cocaine and we'd be talking about like selling stereo equipment yeah. from, and I was like, you get off here. Yeah. The first time. <laughs> right, the first time. Second time was like years later, and I was like, oh, I could do it a little bit. And I was like, instantly couldn't find my way home when it was a straight shot down Sunset. And I was like, all right, never, ever again. Yeah. There's like that kind of moment that makes you change uh, that I think a lot of people don't have, you know? And that's the part that uh, they don't talk about when talking about drugs. And I know why, though. You can't like you, – you can't speak in – gray areas when you're trying to convince kids to not do heroin you know like it's all for that reason don't do heroin because you'll end up being like a street rat and like <laughs> sucking dick for money you know and that generally works for most kids i think yeah and it's like i love that's the great thing about heroin though <laughs> because heroin is clearly so great you know what i mean i've never done it you've never done it yeah well i have and it i can tell you it's great but it's like also you, I knew from when I was a kid that it was great. It has to be. I was like, "Wait, people suck dick for this? This is incredible. <laughs> this stuff, <laughs> this stuff must be amazing." I gotta get me some heroin, you know. It was. It, <laughs> I, I, the, I, there was a guy who offered it to me at a bar in Chicago, and if I didn't have like rehearsals for a show the next day, I probably would have totally done it, and yeah. I would have been that street rat. Like I, I kind of knew like that is the one thing you need. That if you have an addictive personality, yeah. Oh man, gambling. I'm so lucky. I don't have that bug. I like every now and then, like a year, once or twice a year, I'll be in Vegas. And I'll spend a hundred bucks on blackjack, and that's it. I'd lived in Vegas briefly, and I think I spent like ten bucks. Yeah, because I knew I'm like, because like I've gone to the horse track, and I've got, but I get that fever where I'm yeah. like, oh yeah, yeah. And like uh, Jay Johnson, fucking name drop, taught me craps, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is fucking fun. I was like, walk away, because you'll lose everything. Yeah, yeah. Are you like really? You have an extremely addictive personality. I think in certain things, like I, but like. But I also can turn it off. Like, I quit drinking for two years, and I was just like, I got to, like, quit it. Like, I knew that was bad. Yeah. And I also looked horrible. But it was also vanity, because I stepped out of a shower in a hotel, and I was like, wow, I'm unfuckable. Like, yeah. That was, like, I just, that's, I was like, oh, there's a reason no one's dating you. You look like a boozy, middle-aged drunk. You know what's so funny? We, and uh, we don't have to change the subject to this immediately, but that's, I literally feel like that right now. You, you look good, though. I, hey, thanks, man. <laughs> I uh and I I guess I have probably some body image shit whatever in my life but I lately I felt very good about how I looked just like 6 months ago and I yesterday I had to tape this thing and I've been sort of feeling like uh lately and but I was like watching the tape and I was like oh man I'm like a I'm like a look at me I'm like a big fat baby Isn't that weird to be a grown man and be like man you look terrible why does anyone have sex with you that's a really weird part of being an adult. I uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah. No, I am I quitting drinking. I'm just saying, I'm quitting drinking right now because I feel like I look like a big fucking piece of shit. Because of the the pregnancy situation, I feel like I, I've had. I'm not. Do like your I listeners haven't. know yet? Uh, yeah, I, I actually did an interview with Jerry Stahl. I thought you were going to say with <laughs> I your shot baby. heroin with Jerry Stahl and my baby. No, because I because he's a father, and I wanted to break the news with him and get his take on fathering, cool. which was really fun. Yeah, and hilarious, yeah. guys. But but I was like, you know, I don't want to be like 
my dad and be like drunk throughout the pregnancy and like if if something happens god forbid i'm like i don't want to be like i can't make it to the hospital i'm you gotta be the guy yeah yeah and uh but i feel like i had a few beers last night and i just like even while doing it i was like boy this just doesn't it's yeah it's not the same yeah, it's not like woo. I'm out having fun. It's like I don't. It's like I'm not trying to meet broads. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I said broads. <laughs> yeah, did you used to try to meet broads? <laughs> hey, let's go meet some broads. I, anytime I cruise chicks, it's in a '40s movie. That's all I know. I'm wearing a fedora. If you play your cards right, <laughs> you could be having some conversations with Matt Dwyer. <laughs> And then you just fucking fade into the wall. I don't. Sometimes words (laughs) pop out of me like that. (laughs) No, I get it. I totally get it. But uh, yeah, was there? But like with the the not to go back to the heroin, but there was there that definitive moment where you're like, all right, I got to fucking get out of this. You know, no, there wasn't. Kind well, kind. I don't know. It's um, my my time with heroin was like different. It's different than different than what? What's your normal? What's your run-of-the-mill experience with heroin? Um, what you hear about, I don't have the stereotypical relationship with it. I was in college, and throughout college, I sort of, like, moved up the ladder of, like, of drugs. So I was, like, smoking a lot of weed and then moved into psychedelics and then all the psychedelics and then cocaine and lots of cocaine and a little bit of meth and then heroin. And the heroin was, like, kind of sprung on me. Uh, like, a, a friend came over, and we were smoking a bowl, and I had smoked opium before, and he was like, do you want to put some opium on this bowl and I was like yeah and then we smoked it and I was like this is really good opium and uh we did it again the next day and the next day and on the third day he told me that it was black tar heroin Oof. yeah and so by then I'd already smoked it and had I hadn't died and I hadn't uh you know sucked any dicks or killed anybody and I was like oh this is like a normal drug and so then I just started smoking it off of aluminum foil with him and then it got more and more and more until it was like, you know, pretty regularly, like four times a week or something like that. And uh, but I never I was always like pretty cautious about it in the sense that like I tried to not do it two days in a row. And um, the other thing about that stuff is it's hard to get addicted when you're smoking because you by the time you do the amount that it would take to like really hook on, uh, you just fall asleep Uh and then you can get addicted in the sense that you get dope sick from that if you do it regularly. But again, I wasn't doing it two right. days in a row. So I didn't get dope sick when I quit. I didn't like hallucinate. It didn't like, you know, there was no pain or something. Um, the other thing that was really good for me that made my experience like easier and not as hardcore was that I had a friend who was really deep in it and he was the one who exposed me to it. Uh, he, um, uh wouldn't tell us where he got it he like had these dudes and he would like drive down into the ghetto and like and like sit on the on a street corner you know like fucking training day and uh and then a dude would come out and like throw the shit in his car and he would give him the money but he would never tell us where or how to do that and quite frankly i didn't want to and he would mark us up and we found out later that he was marking us up like 10 or 20 bucks a gram uh which some of my friends got mad at, but I was like, whatever, man, he's driving. I don't care. I don't have to do that work. I'm like, that takes me out of like, he was doing it because he wanted to overcharge us. So he got free heroin, but I was just like, whatever, dude, I'll pay whatever I have to pay to never have to deal with the police or a drug dealer. Yeah. And so then like, and like literally I had an extreme amount of fear about that. So I like, I didn't 
have that kind of, I wasn't on that gross side of it or that scary side of it either. So then I got a job at a radio station in Fresno and I was going to college in LA and I moved up to Fresno and I didn't have a hookup anymore. And I just like, I didn't know how to do it. I wasn't really interested in finding a heroin dealer because I am terrified of prison. It's the thing I'm most scared of. That is me too. I'm way more scared of prison than I am into heroin. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I was just like, and I'm in Fresno, and Fresno is notorious for being the intravenous drug capital of the world. And it is still, as far as I know. It was the meth capital of the world, and there's, then... There's a sign on the entrance to town. Right as you drive in. <laughs> Fresno, intravenous drug capital of the world. Um, uh, the Alabama of the West. And, uh... Well, that wasn't nice. I like Alabama. <laughs> They've just made some mistakes. That's all. <laughs> they have. They're like your cousin. You're like, all right, we've. You know, but them. they're honest about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so so I moved up to Fresno, and uh, and I was up there, and I like well, the one thing that so I didn't get dope sick, but the one thing that did happen was that I got like really sad, and I. Uh, like the depression was very real because I quit heroin, but really I just quit like all drug use. And the other thing that really sucks about heroin is that you can't smoke weed anymore. The for some reason the mixture of marijuana and heroin it like makes you crazy. Like it makes you incredibly anxious if you're on heroin and you smoke weed, you get like really, really That's weird. crazy. I never yeah. knew that. I mean, it does it to me, and I've had conversations with other people that are like, I can't, yeah, I can't smoke weed anymore. And I couldn't smoke weed for years. And I've always been an awkward, anxious person, and I, you know, weed was already, you know, it starts to make you anxious as you get older. But, I can't uh, do it. Yes, yeah, so many of us <laughs> can't do it. But, like, especially, it would make, it made me sick to my stomach, and it would make me, like, kind of just want to, like, walk around the block and not be around people, and, like, it made me want to throw up. It was, like, it was weird. So I couldn't smoke weed and uh, I couldn't do drugs. And so it was like severe depression. And I'm in Fresno. So like that didn't help. Fresno is like a very depressing place if you don't know anyone. Um, If you know people, there are some of the best people I've ever met up there. And I was living in a fucking like a room rental in Clovis. And I had a dog and I had no business owning a dog. It was a Rhodesian Ridgeback, (laughs) which are those African dogs that can run like 70 miles per hour and jump jump six feet in the air. And like... uh, How do you end up with one of those? I thought it was a bull, a pit bull. And uh, I got it as a puppy. And I was smoking heroin. That's how. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, yeah. And so I would drive down to LA at that time of my life to to visit my old friends from college every few months because I had no friends in Fresno and uh, when I was with them I would smoke H but then I was seeing them less and less and then every time I'd see them I'd want to smoke it less and less until like probably about a year after I moved no less nine months um, after I moved I was I got down there and uh, a friend of mine was like dude let's 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 pick up and I was like sure and I, I gave him some money for a gram and he bought me a gram and then he showed up because I think that eventually they started they yeah after I moved they found out like how to get their own stuff uh, which is another scary thing and uh, so I gave him money they bought me a gram and he gave it to me and I was with my buddy and uh, <laughs> we were just sitting there and he kept being like hey man let's smoke that and he kept saying that and I was like I don't want to let's save it for like later tonight man and he was like uh and finally, I was like, here, I just gave it to him. And he did it. And then I haven't done it since. It was like really, I really tapered down. And I just, I don't know. I just got, I like, 
I guess I got to a place where I couldn't get it all the time and I didn't want it. And then I, I didn't have it very much. And I saw my life as like basically the same. And then I felt the difficulty that it was going to give me. Cause the thing it does is it like, man, it took me years to recover from the emotional crutch that heroin became. Cause I like, <laughs> it's so funny to talk about for me because I, <laughs> I have friends that like injected it and were in and out of rehab and were really in it. And I really do feel like, I'm not it it wasn't that big of a deal for me because of them like they they were like you know in rehab and like you like laying on a dirty bed in a warehouse with a bunch of other junkies like you know <laughs> like ruining the relationships with their families and stuff like that and I, I I like didn't um but it it like when you and when you smoke that stuff it's it's so weird it's like I I totally know why everyone gets addicted to it cuz it it makes you feel high, but more than that, it makes you feel like you're not high. You are high. And like when you, sh when you shoot up, I think you really go into another world. But like when you plane off, when you, like you, it feels like you're normal and you're yourself. And this is just how you would be if you had never had any stress in your life. It's how you, it's how you would be and how you would feel and act if you didn't have a fucked up childhood or a difficult life in any way. If the world was easy for you, you'd feel like this. And uh, and so you're just, it convinces you that you're you're the real you. You're relaxed, you don't have any worries, you can just get your work done. I would do, I would go about my day, I would, uh, I would do my work, I would play video games, I would hang out with my friends, I would do some more work. I did a lot of writing. It's how I got that radio job. I applied to like 60 radio stations across the country, just like stoned by myself, having like, just free-based black tar heroin off of foil, and then I'd be like, all right, well, I'm going to email about jobs. <laughs> and uh, See, uh, I never equate, because I'm always just like, when you hear like how big of a junkie Kurt Cobain was, I was like, how did he get any fucking songs written? But I guess... Dude, it really, like, it really, the really addictive part of it, aside from the chemical side, is that you feel like yourself. You feel like you're finally yourself. So maybe in a way, Charlie Parker, it did help him. Like, is that like a horror? Because I'm sure like... I mean, it's I had think, a bad influence on a lot because a lot of musicians in that era were like, well, fucking look at Parker play. I guess I should join in. I really do. I think that that's the reason that um, that like a bunch of our heroes were junkies. I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that like, yes, the type of personality that is going to like reach for drugs, like someone who's in pain is going to create great art. You know, that's like. That's a, a logical association to make. But I also think finding heroin makes it – puts you in a place where you can crank stuff out because you're not blocked by your own brain. That's, That's another reason that those guys did that shit, I think. And I, I'm with you, man. I hate saying that into a microphone to go on the internet because I don't want to encourage anyone to do that no. shit. But there's also guys like – I mean, Woody Allen, not the most uh, sane of individuals, but that guy's n really never... I mean, it's like he's yeah. clearly a genius, and I don't think Bergman was shooting heroin. No, you don't... Or, <laughs> maybe, to think maybe. that you need heroin to, uh, to make good art is absolute lunacy. Because not like, sure, we could say, I'll bet you doing heroin raised John Lennon and Kurt Cobain's output like crazy in Charlie Parker. But... um. We just don't – we've just never met the 50 million other people that thought they were artists and were addicted to heroin and fucking died 
on their own couch having never written a good song. Yeah, you know those what guys I mean? were geniuses to begin with. <laughs> I mean, <it's laughs> yeah, like, totally. I mean, I think before They're, John Lennon got into heroin, he was doing all right. Exactly. Yes. Uh, he certainly, the Beatles <laughs> <laughs> had been doing fine for a while. Um, and Kurt Cobain was, you know, objectively uh, a genius. You know, he wasn't doing heroin when he was like, just like hanging out with Kathleen Hanna in Olympia. Man, have you seen that video? I keep, wait, do, no. Of Kathleen Hanna telling the story about Smells Like Teen Spirit? Is that on the uh, is that on that documentary about it? Is that No, 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 no. no. There's just a video, man. It's oh, I have to one of it. my favorite thing. It's one of my favorite things uh, in all the internet. It's uh cuz Kathleen Hanna, I just love her so much. And I've never seen the punk singer. Uh, I need to see that movie. Um, but she it's some storytelling show. There's a band on stage, and her husband, Ad Rock, is playing bass, I believe. I forget that's her husband. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Uh, and I think they live around here. Um, uh, so she's on stage telling a story, and then the band comes in and plays songs in the story sometimes. Uh, so she's telling a story about uh, being friends with Kurt Cobain, and they go to basically like tag an anti-abortion center and he she tags like fuck you or something like that and he tags god is gay and i always love that part of the story she was like yeah he was all so much more creative than me and it was like a really cool moment and then she tells the i'm not going to say the whole anecdote but she tells how like she came up with the name for the song smells like teen spirit basically and uh then at this and she was she started bikini kill and he started nirvana and bikini kill got big Locally and in punk, and then Nirvana became internationally huge, and then it turns into somewhere in there she sings uh, a a verse of the song Rebel Girl, and then she goes on to talk about how Bikini Kill has no money, and she has to strip to make money for their to fix their van to go on tour, and she ends up stripping. She like two days before has given this huge speech to this lead singer of this hardcore band in town who doesn't understand feminism. And she's like, this is what feminism is. And then two days later she's stripping and who's in the crowd, but this oh. hardcore. <laughs> yeah. And then, so that guy sees her runs over and puts smells like teen spirit on the jukebox. And she has to fucking strip to this song that her friend wrote that she named. And her friend is like famous for this song and she's stripping to it. And then she's on stage with her husband and she just plays, they play smells like teen spirit together. It, like while she's telling this story in the video. And it's like one of the most beautiful things. That's I, crazy. It's so cool. Look it up. It's like fucking it's, it's, I think probably my favorite live story event that I've seen. Um, anyway, it's uh, uh yeah, heroin. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, we were talking before we started too because you like that feeling like an outsider, and I think that's another. Not to go back to heroin, but it's like I mean, do you feel like? Because I feel like I get to meet these cool people, and I still never feel like I'm part of the party. <laughs> like, oh man, and it's is like, that really how you feel? I. Because that's not – I've always thought you were someone who, like, everybody liked that was, like, really accepted and, like, part of the party, man. You've always really struck me as someone who is, oh, who is no, in the did group. Did I just blow it? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I mean, you know, maybe you would have blown it if I was a fan of yours at, like, 24. But, you know, the, the veil has been lifted, man. I, uh, <laughs> I don't, Everyone's I mean, weak. I know I'm, we're all fucked. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that, like, I do like I do feel like uh, like the comedy scene and stuff. Like, I have a lot of friends and I feel really – but I yeah. just, like – Maybe it's uh, like 
well, I'll say it. I don't care. Like Comedy Death Ray when that was going on and stuff. I just I always felt like they were just like, hey, youngin, get out of here. Yeah. And I always felt like that's when when I felt like I became slightly an elder of the comedy scene. I was like, be fucking inclusive to everybody and be yeah. friendly because it's like you felt like a piece of shit. And I think there were some people who were like, all right, like you know, played senior. Maybe maybe man, it was my I, own no, neurosis. Man, I felt that like crazy because I started stand up right around that time. I started stand up right after Bang Bang blew up, like right after the Bang Bang. I'm sorry, not Bang Bang. Right after the Death Ray album came out, uh-huh. uh, or maybe right around when it came out. I'm not sure when that album came out, but um, and like I remember, comedy was really exclusive. It really felt like it just felt like a party that I wasn't invited to a lot of the time, and. Uh, my friends and I, and I think probably like, I think right around that time, a lot of us felt that frustration. And it's really cool to hear you say that, that you were like, nah, man, let's be inclusive as someone who was like established and like in the mix already at that point. Cause like I started, and the people I started with were Jeff Wattenhofer, Alan Strickland Williams, Jake Weissman, uh, Barbara Gray, Brandy Posey, uh, some a little bit before me, but that's generally it. And we were all like that. Like we all met each other and we were like, Let's just have fun and support each other. And we started throwing shows and going to each other's shows. And some of the comedy establishment, like, not Death Ray. Death Ray had no idea about us. But, like, the people that were, like, kings of the mics, you know, and, like, ran the great shows in town made fun of us for being supportive. And Such fucking bullshit. Yeah, I know. It's insane. <laughs> it's in, like, I mean, because I, I feel thankful. Like, I always had people who were supportive, but also guys who would be, like, who were older than me that I respected would be, like, they would check me, but in a loving like, and like yeah. be like, "You're doing some bullshit up there," and I'd be like, "It hurt," but it was like, "Thank God!" Like, yeah, give me some integrity because it's hard stand up. You're so on your own. You are so on your own, and, and you, you don't have a. And that's what I've always admired about you guys because it does seem like to me is like, you, you guys kind of conquered and took over a bit. Like, there's such a definitive group of you that was, and it's like. And you Man, that means worked a lot harder to me. than anybody. That, like you guys worked fucking hard, and you created shows, and you did like a lot. Of, and I was like, these guys are fucking doing it, and they're fucking young, and they've like really not dominated. That sounds like like frat boy bullshit. But like sure, but you, you, you guys, your presence was known, and I thought that's always been admirable to me. Man, that's awesome. Thank you, dude. That's that's cool. I yeah, I don't know. We did work hard. I will say that. I we worked hard and it worked. And it's what's funny is that that's like the only advice I can ever give anyone in comedy. Every now and then, actually not every now and then, a lot people want advice. Probably probably from all of us. I mean, you've got to have people asking you. And I like it's like I don't know, less frequent now that I'm like uh on the road sometimes and not at mics all the time, but uh the only advice I can ever give anyone is just, like, work your fucking ass off. Just, like, keep your head down and work your ass off. There's nothing else you can do, you know? Yeah. But I, I, you know, I think that I think that a lot of people think that what you can do is, like, backbite and be bitter. And, like, man, bitterness is so real and it's not unnatural. And you're not a piece of shit if you feel bitter or jealous because it's just so human to feel those things. But... I just I work very diligently at forcing that shit out of my brain, and it doesn't always work. But I really work hard at it because that stuff is fucking poisonous. It's not gonna do, and, and it's like, why wouldn't you want to? Because it's like we live here, man. You're gonna be a comedian your whole life. You see these people every day. You're gonna see the other comics in this town way more than you're gonna see industry, and way, 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 way more than you're gonna see the fucking audiences at the Improv or the audiences at Meltdown. 
And uh, so you better be fucking nice to all the <laughs> comics around you. You should be inclusive. We should not. I mean, be exclusive to the in the sense that, like, have your close friends know who you love and who loves you. But, like, it's just not necessary to make it a tenuous environment. I feel like it's that sort of bitter. Or maybe I don't see it, but I feel like it's like I feel like everyone is pr- friendly. And there's a, yeah, it's very friendly in L.A. now. Like it's back very, in the day, very I had a dude like it was a showcase and bef- I forget what I what he said to me, but it was like right before I went on stage. And it was like one of those like I'm going to fucking put you in your head didn't work because it pissed me off and I was like alright fucker I'm gonna destroy you <laughs> like, yeah. but I was like why would you do that like yeah, who gives a shit and it's Montreal it? I mean it's like it was a Montreal showcase you were showcasing for JFL and a guy tried to fuck you up oh man like right and fuck that guy and he he tanked and it was I forget what he said to me but I was he like did. he was a very alternative like it was one of those and then he went up and like too cool for the room at the improv thing and it was like know your audience pal yeah <laughs> Well, we're coming around on that alternative shit, too. I mean, like, you, an alternative to what? Alternative comedy is what's popular. It's so funny. I mean, we're like, uh, that, that, the reason, I like alternative comedy, quote unquote. I like any, I like weird shit. I like crazy shit. I mean, the way that I, if I write jokes on paper, they just look like the ramblings of a madman. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have to go on stage and tell stories. Otherwise, it's just literally on stage at Little Joy last night. The audience uh, wasn't uh, on board right away, so I just said the word come 20. I was just like, come, 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 come. And they were like, what? And I just kept saying the word come. Anyway, so like I can be real alty is what I'm saying. But I, uh, you know, we're good is good. And uh, those lines are blurred. And, and I don't most of us don't even see the reason to be exclusive in those ways. What's club? What's alt? What is that shit even, you know, like, and the people that try to like force the weirdness and go on stage, like the alt comics and the club club comics are like, ah, fuck you. We don't care. Shut up. You suck. Get off stage. You're not a comic. Be a comic or be an artist, but like, just know what yeah. you are. I mean, if you, I feel like I've never been subscribed to the thing. It's like, well, they just don't get what I'm doing. It's like, if I go out and do a show, it's like, they... It's my job to get them on board. Maybe they don't get what you're doing, but then you didn't do your job. And the thing is that, like, yeah, man, I, you know, you have to, like, be honest with yourself. Like, sometimes sometimes you just bomb. Sometimes the audience just doesn't like you. you, you but you also, like, can't make a habit of blaming the audience or saying they don't get you. Because if they don't get you 30 times in a row, then maybe you're, like, not. <laughs> yeah. It'll make, there is, there is, I mean, there's some people who I guess who just love it, but I'm like, after a while, it's like. God, if you just, I don't know. Isn't there a time when you, like there's times when I'm like, maybe I need to like step away. I have stepped away. Yeah. Because I've, I've caught myself where I, it stops being fun. And I'm like, once it stops being fun. It's, well, that's weird. It, it's hard. It's not, you're not doing it right. Yeah. Have you, I meant to, I've been mean to ask you this. Have you completely stopped doing improv? Because you used to do like a shitload of improv, right? I haven't probably done improvisation in 10 years. I wow. did a little bit when I, like if I visited Chicago, I'd do a set at Second City. Yeah. But that was the thing. I was like, all right, I got what I, like I just, I, I think if I ever had to watch an improv show again, I'd tear the skin off my face. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's some guys who like, <laughs> Keckner is, uh, Keckner and this guy Kevin Dorf or, or David Pasquese, or uh, I don't know if Pasquese's a, a Chicago guy, but he's like, mad good where it's just like these guys do stuff and it's like it's flawless and it's riveting and it's hilarious and it's like I know what you mean engaging. when improv is amazing it's absolutely it's incredible Joe Wenger man you ever watched Joe Wenger do, do improv no his I don't know I've seen a lot of improv and his team the smokes him and Eugene Cordero are just like 
Dude, Joe Wenger, man. Joe Wenger is the truth, dude. As far as comedy goes, like he's... What a great thing to say about somebody. Dude, he... The truth. I mean, because yeah. that's what you strive for. Yeah. He's... He really... And doing... Watch his writing. He's just... And it's a long con with him. You know, I, I think he's not... He's not a necessarily pretty face in the sense of like, uh, you know, he's not like a hot dude or something. Uh, and he's not uh, this like... He's not zeitgeisty necessarily, and he he doesn't uh, he doesn't pop or the way that like Adelia does or something. But I feel like he's gonna be Louis or Carlin or something. He's like, but yeah, watching him do improv is like, oh. Have you done improv? No, twice, and uh, d- dude, actually, <laughs> <laughs> one time I did improv at Power Violence as a gag. Uh, women, my sketch group, we co-hosted Power Violence with the Power Violence guys, and. Uh, and it was just like we were like purposely doing all the wrong things, like uh, pointing at a fake phone and like, you know, like, there it is. There's the phone. Why, why can't you find your phone? Uh, <laughs> um, but the um, the uh, the f- first time I ever did improv, this is fucking totally true, man. This is so weird. I uh, I, I hate it. I hate doing it. And I also usually hate watching it. And that sucks because I have friends who are improvisers. It's understandable. But it's like I I don't – because I don't – people say like, oh, man, you got to do improv to understand a herald. And it's like, ah, fuck you. I don't want to – That's bad. (laughs) That doesn't make sense to me. I don't uh, – whatever. It doesn't matter. I I like it sometimes. Um, But I – so – we have a bunch of friends who work for Tosh.0, you know, and uh, Jocelyn Hughes, when she worked for Tosh.0, messaged a handful of us and was like, hey, do you want to be in a Tosh.0 sketch? And I was broke and had no job at the time. And I was like, hell yeah. She was like, yeah, it pays 100 bucks. You're just going to be extras in this sketch where you're going to be the worst improv team of all time. And we were like, great, no problem. I'm definitely the worst improviser of all time. Let's do it. <laughs> and uh, it was myself, Jake Weissman, Brandy Posey, Josh Chaney, and Sean Perlman. And she gave us an address, but it wasn't an address. It was just like, drive down to Hermosa Beach Park and walk this direction. And we were like, well, that doesn't help. But it did help because we it was a live episode of Tosh.0. So there was a huge – they had built like risers and a stage at the Hermosa Beach Pier. There were hundreds of people there. So they didn't tell us that we were going to be doing this sketch live. They also didn't tell us that they were going to be presenting us as if – this is just what we do. We're the worst improv team of all time. So, like, that already bothered me because I'm a comedian and I've never been on TV. And I went to high school and everyone called me gay and, and made fun of me and stuff. <laughs> and so, like, I want to get on TV as a comedian as, like, a good comic. I don't want my f- to show up on TV and be like, all right, let's check out these losers. They suck. And I just, like, walk on stage and I'm like, yeah, this is the real me. I'm being honest right now. Look at me suck. And I'm just like picturing all the people that picked on me or messed with me in high school. And like, ah, I always knew that guy was a loser bitch, you know? Oh. And, uh, and it's also, it's a, a treadmill marathon. So the whole, they're like these, there's a big stage and you know, the ocean behind us. And then there are risers like on the left and right side bleachers of people just sitting there like eating hot dogs and being pieces of shit, you know, and uh, <laughs> no respect for humanity at all. And <laughs> and then there's just a sea of people on treadmills running in front. And uh, and so 
there's a, a craft services tent. And the one really great thing, aside from being with my friends, which is like sharing an experience like that was like really, really redeemed it. But also Todd Glass was there. And Todd Glass in a green room or a craft services tent is, you can't beat it. He, that guy's the funniest person alive, you know? Him and Chris Fairbanks. No one makes me laugh harder than Todd Glass or Chris Fairbanks. Dude, oh, man, Fairbanks. By the that, did you see that video where he? So great. <laughs> Just his, uh, he like his what his what seems like effortlessness on his part, like yeah. And it's, oh, here's another thought. And it's like it's definitely calculated. Oh, yeah. it's work. And it's, yeah. but I'm like you. Bad, like, I mean, I'm so jealous, to be quite honest. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just so – but he's been cultivating it for years yeah. and crafting it. We're talking about he and Mike Upchurch made this video where they rotoscoped uh, Fairbanks into the movie Cocktail and made it a movie about three bartenders instead of two. Uh, oh, my God. That's it's so great. funny. So anyway, so anyway, Todd Glass is there, and he's just being hilarious, and we're all laughing. And he, like, at one point, he's like uh, – He's like, hey, you guys ever seen my impression of a uh, fat girl trying to be dainty? And we're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> which is like such an abrasive thing to say. And he grabs a hot dog off the craft services table, shoves the whole thing in his mouth, and then kisses the tips of all his fingers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys, you guys try the hot dogs? Oh, my God. He's so funny. So anyway, they, um, we, up until this point, still think – that we're going to be doing a sketch about how we're the worst improv team of all time. And they've told us we're just going to be called on stage as this improv group. And then everyone's going to boo us off stage immediately. And we'll be like, Oh, you know, later. So they, these acts, uh, Daniel Tosh has been on stage talking about the treadmill shit and saying whatever he says. And, uh, and then they start introducing the acts. Todd Glass goes up there and purposely bombs. They bring up a magician. I think some girls danced. And then these producers come up. They're like, all right, you're up and one more. And they, they hook us up with those Backstreet Boys mics, those, like, mics that look like we're in a call center. And, uh, <laughs> and they take us over to the side of the stage. And the producer's like, all right, cool. You guys know what you're doing. And then ran away. And we were like, no, we don't. And I think I had, like, I'm probably the one with the highest anxiety of the group, which is crazy because Jake Weissman was there. And, uh, <laughs> and I, but I know Jake very well. And I do know that I'm even more like than him. And, uh, and so I was, oh, I was so wound up and, uh, this other producer comes over or PA and he's like, all right, cool. You guys know what you're doing. And I was like, no, man, no, we do not know what we're doing. And he was like, Oh really? Okay. And he goes and gets someone and this producer comes up and he was like, okay, cool. Um, change of plan. You guys are just going to do five minutes of improv. And oh, we were like, <laughs> we were like, what? And he was like, oh, come on. You've done improv before. And we were like, literally, no, literally. I've never done improv before. And he was like, well, then why did they book you? And I was like, they booked us to be a sketch about a bad improv group. And he was like, ah, you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, man. <laughs> so I'm like, it's my first TV appearance ever in front of a live audience. Everyone's bombing and they're all running on treadmills. And uh, so another producer comes up. He's like, all right, you guys ready to go? And I was like, no. And he was like, ah, you'll be fine. And then Daniel Tosh goes, all right, there's never a good time for improv. So everyone, please give it up for the improv group. Sketch me if you can. Oh, boy. We didn't even pick the name. <laughs> like, we walk on stage and we look like the biggest losers of all time. I, like, go to the front of the stage. And I'm like, all right. Uh, I just, we were, right before we were like, who wants to, who wants to, say something to the crowd and i was like ah i'll do it 
Uh, we walked out on stage and I was like, uh, all right, uh, can I get one suggestion from the audience? And one of the dudes on the treadmills goes, die. And I was like, all right, he suggested we die. And then we did five minutes of improv about death. And it was the worst, just the worst. I walked off stage so sad and dejected. This just ruined my life. I'm going to be on TV looking like a total loser. Uh, but then the episode came out. And um, the only thing of all that they kept was us going on stage and me saying, hey, uh, can I get a suggestion from the audience? Die! He suggested we die. And then they paid me $900. Well, that's not bad. So it was actually fun. Like, I got one funny line in. We didn't look like big pieces. Because they didn't show any of the terrible improv we did. So it really came out well in the end. That's uh, good. And I got some more money. But that was the first time I ever did improv. Yeah. I was, uh, that's... <laughs> I don't think that's many people's improv experience. No, <laughs> no. But and just before we wind it up too, because I want to talk about uh, uh, the you mentioned women and it's like, did you were you did you have guys have a formable for for formulable? Thank you. Is that a word? I for, I don't know. Formative. If it is. Formative. Formulaic. I don't Formula- know what you're trying to say. <laughs> I don't know the word you want. Uh, Formula forty forty. Clean <laughs> with it. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Uh, but I mean, did you, did you guys just start writing sketch or did you have like a back? Cause if, if I haven't said it to you, I know I've said it to others in a group, like you guys are fucking great. And it's oh, like, man, thank you. and I've thought like, you know, you see, you see like SCTV and then you're like, oh, there, nothing could ever beat SCTV or SCTV be as good. It is great. And then like, uh, kids in the hall come by and you're like, all right, well, nobody's going to be as good as kids in the hall. And then Mr. Show comes by. And that was my thought. It was like, wow, sketch is just in a tough spot. Yeah. Like, there's uh, Keegan and Peel, which I've don't have no knowledge of really. Yeah. I mean what I've seen is great. But like I feel like you guys have done something I don't know, it's it's fresh. Like I hate that word. I hate it. I just said it. <laughs> no, I felt like a you're fresh I felt, kid. I felt like an agent. Um you know I'm looking at a forty six year old man right now. <laughs> you're fresh <laughs> oh, and then I hit my head on the mic. Oh no. But like I feel like you guys are doing something very different and inventive and like smart and it's like I fucking love watching like dude, that's so awesome. Thank you. But it's like it and I'm like if these fuckers don't get a series, I'm going to go on a murder spree. Fuck, we're working hard on it too. We're working really 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 hard on it. It's I have never worked harder in my entire life and we're we're also making sketches still. Man, yeah, you know, it's funny. It it I like us too, and that's hard for me to say because I, you know, it's I I never want to be one of those people that's like da. I you know, you know those comics who like you'll see him after a show and be like and you'll be like how how'd you do da oh, crushed and you're like oh god <laughs> and they bomb I hate you even if they did well it's uh, like I cr- I crushed that uh, guy yes I know that guy there's a difference between I crushed and like it was great man I did great you know. I crushed. I never want to be that guy. I've, I'm incapable. I mean, like, I'm always like, ah, you know, like, I, like, if I had fun, that's all I judge. Yeah, for. yeah. If when if I'm telling a story, like, at a storytelling show, I'll be like, I murdered. It's just like, you don't want to be telling a story live and be like, yeah, but I did well, and I don't know. <laughs> like, you don't want to do that. But uh, anyway, uh, so it's hard for me to say, but I, I'm proud of us, and, and yeah, and I like it, too, and thank you. And, and uh, yeah, to answer your question, we... We like it was a long process for us because we like uh, we we'd been doing stand up like a year and a half each, probably around when we were like, you know, people started to notice us. Like you said before, Alan Strickland Williams, Jake Weissman and I'm sorry, Alan Strickland Williams, Jake Weissman and me. And then later uh, we asked 
Pat Bishop to join. But Alan and Jake and me, when we started making the videos, we just like wanted to make something together. And we we felt like we kind of hated most video sketch that we would see. Um, and it's not that like I always hated it, but I'm like really over the like establish the beat, the joke, and then heighten it three times. Like I no, like do the joke. That's really how I feel about <laughs> comedy. Do your fucking joke and then go to a new joke. That's how I, I want comedy to be. Like we wrote one joke and then the same joke again, but bigger. Shut up. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, it's exactly what because mm -hmm. if you see videos too you're like five minutes like, like what are you yeah. fucking like you, yeah and it's just like drawn out blah yeah and some people do it really really well some people genuinely and and you know you know what some people's answer to that is that would never have occurred to me is to make like 12 minute videos and and like that is in most cases a bad idea i would never encourage anyone to do it but there's also a group in town called the dress up gang that's Corey Lukasik and Donnie Devonian, and they make these epic, like, 15, 20-minute sketches sometimes that are amazing. See, that's awesome. Yeah, it's great. I, and I, the five-minute thing, too, is, like, I feel slightly bad because I'm like, oh, we've gotten to the short attention span. But it's like most people, they meander within their they sketches. Meander with, they meander within it. Or they, like, they, people feel married to the idea of the game and hitting it. And like I said, some people do it well, but it's like... I don't know. I, I'm a huge fan of get in and get out. And so we started making videos like that and we weren't good at it at first. And we like, I think we had a sensibility from the start and we knew how to write together pretty quickly, but, but we were, we weren't, we were shooting on a flip. We didn't give a shit about lighting. We were trying to crank out a sketch a week and they were like five seconds long in some cases. And I still really love a lot of that stuff, but we were also in that process learning. A lot of them were just weird and like weird for the sake of weird. And I don't even hate that, but they weren't like some of them just weren't comedy is what I'm saying. We made one sketch called interiors. We have since we Pat joined the group about two years into us being a group. And we have since removed all those sketches from the internet. Just cause we don't think that they're like reflective of us anymore, but I still like a lot of them. And one of them that I really, really like uh, is called interiors. And it was just short clips of us um, putting our fingers and hands in and out of holes and spaces in our apartments. Uh, so it was, that's it. Just clips of that. That's awesome. And then it cut to us pouring milk into a jug. And so it was like hand sex, hand coming, and then that was the sketch. Uh, <laughs> but that was the type of shit we would make. And it took, like, it took a couple of years, and we almost quit. It was like got so arduous, the writing process. We got so frustrated. But... Um, but now you you guys it seems like there's like then you you guys go to South by Southwest as women which is yeah now we, we we really have a routine we we like we I think we get each other a lot we 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 cast each other very well we we write roles for each other very well we um we all have also just gotten to be better writers like I've noticed all of us like the jokes and the beats and the formatting and the, and it's just gotten so much more tight and polished and also just the process is better we like we have a, an email account for women but then we have a separate email account that's closed that we just have that we like we're all constantly writing sketches and we just email it into that account and then once a week um when we're not shooting we have uh, a writing meeting and then we just go through all the sketches we've all written we pick the ones that we generally we pick the ones that we like conceptually and tonally and then we uh 
either some or all of us do rewrites on it until it's we think it's perfect and then we shoot it. Do it's you direct just, it most of it? No. Pat directs oh, really? almost all of them. I yeah. thought you did for some reason. No. I I like to direct and I used to direct like when it was just the three of us I would direct uh a fair amount of the time. I feel like um but really no. Like really we all have always directed, you know. Uh I do I did always like that aspect of it. And uh and I, I want to again in the future, but no, right now, like Pat is just that's the thing, man. Alan and Jake are two of my favorite comedians and two of my favorite people. They're like undeniably hilarious and talented people, but Pat Bishop and they'll Alan and Jake will say the same thing. That dude the dude is fucking Spielberg or Tarantino or like, you know, David Yao, Wayne Kramer. Like really, man, he's like that's Pat Bishop is is fucking Johnny Cash. Directing's not easy either. Like I, no. I once I tried to do a short film that I starred in and I wrote and I was like, uh, and then instantly I was like, how the fuck has Woody Allen done this fifty times? Yeah. And for like months, like I'm like, I'm like, nope, I, this is not me. Exactly. And you know, I think I think I think a lot of it too is is balls and uh, hubris. I really do think like Woody Allen. So much of his output is just him having the hubris to like just start making movies. Like I'm just gonna make a movie a year for my whole life. And it's like, oh yeah, you think you can make a movie a year? And he's like, yeah, I think I can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a lot of you think these suck? I don't give a shit. And a lot of people think his movies fucking suck, you know. And he really there's another thing I think a lot of people in, in any art world need to learn is that uh, stand up stand up helps with everything for some weird reason. Woody Allen wouldn't have gotten where he he was without stand up comedy, not even close. And it's like it exposes you in this way where people see you as you writing how you write, performing how you perform, being funny how in the way that you want the world to be funny. It really just encapsulates you um, in a in a succinct and direct way uh, and presents you to the world. And it's funny. No one wants to give you money for it at all. No one wants to pay you for it. It doesn't pay That's you weird. barely anything, but it does show an example of uh, of how you are artistic. And then people uh, take that if they like it and try to put it in all these other avenues. And it certainly worked for Woody and a handful of other people. So, And I think it's working for you. So. Ah, Where what can- a way to end. <laughs> Where can people find all things Dave Ross? Uh, Dave to the Ross. Dot com is my website. It's me everywhere. Dave to the Ross at gmail.com is my email and at Dave to the Ross on Twitter. All that stuff. I have a podcast called Terrified. Oh, that's on Nerdist. Right. Very popular podcast, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think, but you I had, think it's doing all right. No, did, you, did you have Michael Cronin and Ty Seagal on? Michael Cronin and Ty Seagal have done it. I've all, oh, Seagal. To, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know which know. one it is. I, uh, I think I'm wrong, and I think you're right. I think, I think that's what he says, is okay, Ty Seagal. Well, I think that would be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Also, man, one of my favorites, those guys were two of my favorites, and I, I think maybe my favorite episode of the whole show, I interviewed Petey Dammit, who, from the OCs, uh, the bassist, he's not, he plays guitar, but it's, he's the, the bass element of the band, not anymore, but anyway, he's this, like, imposing, like, six foot four skinhead, like, 40 year old skinhead motherfucker, anti-racist skinhead motherfucker who just like looks like he'll fucking kill you and he's in this amazing band and he's like oh hi how are you and uh 
Uh, I love guys like that. He's the sweetest man. And uh, I interviewed him, and uh, I was like, uh, it's about the podcast is about self loathing and fear. Most people were like, this is what I'm afraid of. And he was like, I fucking hate myself, and here's why. It was. That's awesome. An amazing interview. I have to so check anyway, out that one. Yeah. That's where you can find me, that podcast. And yeah. All right. Thank you, Dave Ross. Thank you, man. This was great. It was. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Use the Amazon link. Donate some money if you can. Follow me on Twitter, the Matt Dwyer, uh, Matt Dwyer underscore, Matt underscore Dwyer at Twitter. Go to themattdwyer.com. It's an easier way to find it. I love you all. Thank you. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. <laughs> the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.